0: The title for the message this morning is 72 Ways to Know God. I'll try my best to keep each point to approximately five minutes. So the sermon will be finished after six hours. I'm so glad that you laughed and didn't take me seriously. I wondered about that. What we're going to do this morning is talk about uh, three things, which really are one thing. We're going to talk about witness, evangelism, and mission. And we're going to use uh, the story of Jesus sending the 72 to do that. So I want to open with, um, with something a little bit personal to me, something that has touched me in my past um, about witness and evangelism. How many of you are familiar with an artist named Keith Green? Keith Green show of hands. So this is a, a singer. I think I've mentioned him here before, and uh, he died, oh, about 30 years ago, something like that. Uh, he is a Christian singer, and he has a song, and it's called a Sleep in the Light. How many of you know this song by Keith Green, a Sleep in the Light? Not very many. In my, about a year after I became a Christian, I was, uh, I was in my room, a dorm room at college, and I heard this song for the first time, and I'm really glad that I was alone, uh, because when I heard this song, uh, the Spirit of God struck me uh, so distinctly and so hard that I, I just started crying and crying and praying, and I, I probably did that for 45 minutes or an hour in response to this song. So hopefully I won't do that today, but <laughs> I won't do that today. But I want, I want to read you some of the words to this song, and Keith Green is, is just a dramatic person. He, when he would sing this song, he would scream it out, and, and he almost sounded like he was begging people uh, when he would sing this song. Uh, but here are some of the words. It begins, and it says, Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes, And pretend the job's done. Oh bless me Lord, bless me Lord. You know that's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. (laughs) Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries. So how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one. But like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. And then this is my favorite verse of the whole song. (laughs) The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because she's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you, you can't even get out of bed. Keith Green was a very intense person, and he, he uh, started a, a Christian community, an alternative Christian community in Texas, and then he uh, died in a plane crash. Uh, I think he might even have been flying, I'm not sure, but um, great guy, and I encourage you to listen to that song if you have a chance. So Keith Green is suggesting to us that we have a problem, not just a problem that we have in our church, but a problem that the church has. And uh, Jesus seems to think the same thing. And here's how Jesus states the problem. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus and Keith Green seem to agree that we have a problem. What we'll do this morning is we'll talk about the story of the 72. I'm going to tell the story briefly, and then I'll bring to you three points for your consideration about a witness and evangelism and mission. The story of the 72. This is an incredible story. Many of us have heard it before. Jesus has been teaching his disciples for some time, and he's gathered a group of disciples, more than just the 12. Now he has a larger group around him. We don't know how large. And he decides to send them all out. They've been with him um, for maybe you know months or years, And they've watched him do all kinds of things. They've watched him preach and heal the sick and go from town to town. Uh, They've watched him eat with sinners and connect with people on a deep level uh, who he had never met before. And now he sends them out to do what he himself has already been doing. But now, instead of just watching him do it, they're going to do it. And he sends them out with nothing. And this, I think, is the most challenging part of the story to imagine. And don't worry, I'm not going to tell you that you're called to do this, so you're safe. But just imagine that you had been there. How challenging would this have been? You need to go out, take one friend with you, and you're going to go to a town that you've never been to before. In fact, many towns you've never been to before. And you're not going to take any money. And you're not going to take any food. You're not going to take any extra clothes, no backpack. And I want you to be lightning-focused on your mission. If you see someone on the road who you know, you can't even talk to them. You're going exactly where I told you, and that's it. So he sends them out with nothing. And what they're supposed to do uh, with this nothing is four things. And and we're going to sort of think of what they're called to do in this way today. They're supposed to enter, they're supposed to eat, they're supposed to heal, and they're supposed to announce, all right? So they're called to enter. First, they're called to enter towns that Jesus has sent them to. These are towns they've never been to before. And when they enter those towns, they're supposed to just wait around for some uh, kind person to take them into their home. If no one takes them into their home, they won't have anything to eat, and they'll be sleeping on the street. And then they're called, if someone takes them in, to eat. They're supposed to eat whatever is set before them, even if it's something they really hate. And then they're called, after they've eaten and gotten to know these people, they're called to heal the sick. They're called to to go and find the problems in this town and fix them in the name of Jesus. And then they're called to announce the kingdom of God and announce that Jesus is coming. Jesus tells them to enter, to eat, to heal, and to announce. And they go and they do this. And as they do it, some of the towns welcome them. In many of the towns, there are people who take them in, and they stay there for we don't know how long. And some of the towns reject them. We see that in the scripture reading. Jesus curses some of these towns that I guess he thinks are going to reject them, or he maybe knows are going to reject them. And then they come back after they've done this, and they're filled with joy, it says, uh, in verse 17 Luke chapter 10 verse 17 the 72 returned with joy and said lord even the demons submit to us in your name they're so excited when they return Jesus then teaches them some more and he gets pretty excited himself so that's the story now what is this story doing uh, what why did Jesus do this and why did Luke record this story for us i want to suggest this morning that What this story is, is an image of our relationship with God. It's an image of what it means actually to be a Christian. That doesn't mean it's the only image of what it means to be a Christian, but it is an image that's given to us of what it means to be a Christian and to follow God. Why do I think that? Well, first of all, because, as I said, these 72 who are sent out, are sent to do what Jesus himself has been doing. And isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Is to follow Jesus, to do what he has been doing. And second, it's very interesting that Luke includes this story at all. Now, the story of the sending of the 72 is not in any of the other Gospels. And there's a fairly good reason it's not in any of the other Gospels. No doubt Mark and Matthew and John all knew that this had happened. They were there. But this story is very similar to another story that's already been told, the story of the sending out of the 12 apostles. Right? This has actually happened in the Gospel of Luke in the chapter just before. Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, and even some of the words are the same. The 12 apostles are sent out with nothing. They're sent to do these things, to enter these towns, to heal the sick, and to announce the kingdom of God. So I think the other evangelists the other people who wrote the Gospels, didn't think it was necessary to repeat this story. But Luke did. And Why is that? I think that the reason Luke repeats this story is to tell us that this is something that is an image, an example for all Christians to follow. It's very easy for us to say, when we see Jesus doing something, oh, that's Jesus. Jesus was a very special person, and so not everything about his life applies to us, right? And even if we look at the story of the sending of the 12, right? These were the 12 apostles, 12 special people who had a very particular calling from God. And so does what they do apply to us? Is that something that we should do as well? Maybe, maybe not. But in this story, Luke shows shows to us that it's not just the 12 who are called to do this, this, but it is the 72 a number very close to 70. In fact, if you look in your NIV, the footnote says that some manuscripts have the number 70, sending out the 70, the number of completion. This is the entire people of God at that time who are sent to do this. And so this story is, for us, a metaphor. It is given to us not literally to walk around with only one pair of sandals and no backpack. Of course, we couldn't do this unless we lived in Judea in the first century. But it is given to us figuratively to show us what our lives in Christ should be like. And so now, uh, three points for you to consider about this story. The first point, which is the main point, and so if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, please pay attention to this first point. First point is this you cannot know someone apart from their obsession. You cannot know someone apart from their obsession. Let me explain what I mean. In 2005, there was a movie that I watched that came out called Fever Pitch. Has anyone seen that movie? It's star- one hand up. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll jog your memory. It wasn't a super popular movie, but it starred uh, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. And the premise of the movie was that uh, Jimmy Fallon's character he was he had an obsession. He was absolutely obsessed with the Boston Red Sox, right? Obsessed uh, to, you know, the nth degree. Um, he had been to every game uh, since he was maybe born or maybe since he was a very uh, little kid. And, you know, his entire room was nothing uh, but, but memorabilia from the Boston Red Sox, and it's all that he talked about, it's all that he thought about. Um, as he would go about through his day, he was a fairly normal person, mild-mannered kind of guy. But anytime anyone talked to him about the Boston Red Sox, he came alive. and he was suddenly he was suddenly super excited. and all his friends were, of course, extreme Boston Red Sox fans. And the movie, uh, the way that it goes is, of course, he meets Drew Barrymore, and, you know, of course, he doesn't tell her that he's this, uh, you know, extreme fan right away, and, you know, they they sort of fall in love, and they get to know each other. But at some point, as they're, you know, moving maybe even toward marriage, uh, she has to find out that he is obsessed with the Boston Red Sox. She has to find out. Of course, when she finds out, she at first thinks, you know, oh, maybe that's that's okay. You know, I, I like baseball okay. But then as she gets deeper and deeper into his obsessive life of the Boston Red Sox, She can't handle it and they get in a lot of fights. And it becomes clear that there's no way they can get married unless either he gives up this obsession or she joins in on the obsession. And of course, since it's a movie, what happens is at the end she joins his obsession. And the movie ends with them kissing, you know, like on the field with the Boston Red Sox, and they promise that they're going to name their children after some of the players. And things like this. Okay? So this is an example I bring to you uh, to show you that if, if someone has an obsession, something they're really, really passionate about, you can know them and connect with them to a certain point if you don't share that obsession or passion. But there's a point that you can't go beyond. And God himself has an obsession. He has one deep driving passion. What is that obsession? God's obsession is to reclaim this lost world. All through the Bible, uh, we see this. um, Think about a few points here. Uh, God has been thinking about this particular thing, reclaiming this lost world, reclaiming you from sin and death. He has been thinking about it, not just for a few years, not just since you were born, not just since the beginning of the world, but he's been thinking about this one thing, reclaiming the lost world forever. I would call that obsessive. I would call that a passion. Jesus describes himself and God as the good shepherd, the one who, even though he's got 99 sheep, is ready to just ditch them all and run after the one sheep who is lost. There are many other images like this we could show to show God's passion to go after what is lost and to go after this lost world. And then, of course, if someone has an obsession, if someone has a deep passion, they're willing to make huge sacrifices for it. They're willing to pay great price for it. Some of you who are obsessed with the Vancouver Canucks pay an incredible price to go and see a Vancouver Canucks game. I would never pay that much money. I'm not a sports guy. But God paid the price. What price did he pay for this obsession of his? It's over my head as you look up behind me. He paid the greatest price that could possibly be imagined, paid the price of his one and only son so that he could reclaim this lost world. God is consumed by this one obsession, this one passion to reclaim this lost world. And therefore, Unless we share that passion, unless we share in that work, there is a point beyond which we can't know God more intimately than we do. Think about the story of the 72. Imagine the difference between their relationship with Jesus before they went on this mission trip and their relationship with him after. Before they went, it would be right to say that they knew Jesus. They lived with him. They saw what he did, they knew lots of things about him, and they had been learning from him. But when they're sent out on this trip, they gain an entirely new perspective on Jesus. Now instead of just instead of just watching him do things, they're actually doing what he's been doing. They're having the same experiences. They they have the same experience of awkwardly entering these towns where you don't know anyone and trying to, you know, start up conversations or, or get invited to someone's house for dinner. I don't know how they did that. They have the same experience of sometimes being accepted and sometimes being rejected. They have the same experience as Jesus of of eating with these people and of healing, of being actually used by the Spirit of God to heal people. And then they have the same experience as Jesus of announcing the kingdom of God. And you can see what this does to them when they come back. As I said before, they're so full of joy, They're so excited to see Jesus after this, and and they feel this connection with him, and you can see that he feels the same connection back with them. Their relationship has gone to a whole new level. Not only are they filled with joy, but if you look down at verse 21, Jesus begins giving these prayers and almost this doxology. Um, Verse 21, it says, At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is so excited now that there's someone who shares this passion, who shares this one obsession that he and his father have. This book uh, that I've got here, um, maybe more of you will know this than knew the movie or Keith Green, hopefully. This is a book called Knowing God, and it's by an author named J.I. Packer. How many of you are familiar with this book? Okay, great. This is a great book. Great book. This is a classic of, of Christian uh, literature in the 20th century. And um, if you have questions or, or you wonder, what does it mean to know God? Um, can I, what does it mean to actually have a relationship with Him, not just say that? This is a great place to go and a great book to read. Um, the book is called Knowing God. And in the very, uh, the very core of the book, then, I would say, is, is uh, chapter 3 which is also called Knowing God, Knowing God and Being Known. And right in the middle of chapter 3, J.I. Packer makes this very same point, that to know God, to know him deeply, you must know him in his work, in his mission, in the thing that he is focused on. And he has a very long section, but I'll just read a little bit for you. This is what he says, how he describes uh, Knowing God. J.I. Packer says, God is enlisting you as a colleague. It is a staggering thing, but it's true. The relationship in which sinful human beings know God is one in which God, so to speak, takes them onto his staff to be henceforth his fellow workers and personal friends. So if you didn't believe me, you must believe J.I. Packer. Because lots and lots of people think that he's very smart and he knows what he's talking about, and he is. So that was point number one, that you cannot know someone apart from their obsession. God has an obsession. And so if we want to know God deeply, we must share his passion. Point number two, witness evangelism mission is a spiritual discipline. That might sound a little bit strange at first, uh, we've been talking about spiritual disciplines for a number of weeks uh, in church. Uh, Pastor Ryan has been speaking on it. We've talked about uh, spiritual disciplines as things that God has given us to do, activities that God has given us to do, that he uses to make us more like Jesus. That's what a spiritual discipline is. And we've talked about many of those. Some of those are you know, reading your Bible, and prayer, and communion, and silence and solitude. These are all things that when we practice them, God uses them to make us more like Jesus. And I want to say today that witness and evangelism mission is a spiritual discipline. It makes us more like Jesus. If we think again about the story of uh, the sending of the 72, we can see that this is actually part of their discipleship. Jesus teaches them up to a point, and he has them with him. But there comes a point where Jesus feels like he can't just keep talking to them. It won't do them any good if he gives them another sermon or another Bible study. At this point, they have to actually go out and do what he's been talking about, actually go and do what he himself has been doing. And then once they do, it's time to teach them again once they come back from this and have experienced it, now he can continue and go further and teach them deeper things uh, than he could have taught them before. Uh, I want to also read you a very interesting verse uh, that's been on my mind for a while. If you want to turn to it, you can. Uh, the letter to Philemon, and we'll read uh, verse 6 here, just a bit of a, a proof verse here to show you that witness in evangelism really is a spiritual discipline, something that will bring us um, closer to God and make us more like Jesus. This is an incredible verse uh, in the NIV here. Philemon verse 6 says this, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of Jesus. The implication that if you don't share your faith, if you're not active in sharing your faith, you will be hindered in your understanding and knowledge of Christ. Is your faith growing? Is your faith dry? Does it feel like you've been stuck in the same place for a long time? Perhaps this is why. Perhaps you need to stop just hearing the words of Jesus and actually go out and join him in his mission. So that was point number two, witness, evangelism, mission is a spiritual discipline. And point number three, if we have been convinced and and we know that this is God's passion and so we want to join in him, uh, we want to join with him in this passion uh, and go out in mission and evangelism, how do we do it? How should we think about it? And Jesus' answer to us in this section is that when we do mission, when we go out, we should go like lambs among wolves. That is his answer. What does that mean? It means that when we enter into God's mission, we are not the ones in a position of power. We are to go out powerless to a world that has all the power. Think about that image, lambs among wolves. What is it like for a lamb to be among wolves? If a lamb is with wolves, there's no hope for them, right? They cannot possibly save themselves. So what does a lamb do? What do sheep do when the wolves come around? They're domesticated animals. They can't stop the wolf. They look for the shepherd. When sheep see the wolves, they look for the shepherd. And we can see that that's exactly what happens here. That's, in fact, the point of Jesus sending them out in such a powerless way to these towns and villages, is that they will look to him because there's no other way they can succeed. When they go into these towns and they don't have any food and they don't have a place to stay what do you think they're going to do? They're going to pray, right? And then someone comes along and invites them into their house. Um, they find when they go to these places that God has already been there ahead of them doing his work, that God has already prepared for them uh, these people, uh, these men of peace, these families of peace that they're able to stay with. And they are able to see that because they are in a position of powerlessness. This means a couple of things for us if we're going to go out in mission and do God's work. It means, I think, first of all, that mission and evangelism and witness is always going to be hard, awkward. It's always going to be outside of our comfort zone. It's never going to be us who have the great answers and the lowly peons who don't know Jesus and we impart our wisdom to them. Instead, it's going to be crossing boundaries that are very difficult for us to cross. But at the same time, uh, it means that there's lots of things we don't need that sometimes we think we need if we're going to join in God's mission. It means that we don't need any special training. We don't need any special training to join God in his mission. We don't need uh, to be impressive to the people uh, that we're sent to. We don't need to be the great ones. We don't maybe even need a plan, although plans aren't bad. But what we need is just simply to look to God. So, that then is our third point that if we are going to go and do the work of God and go out in, and participate in His mission, how do we do it? We do it like lambs sent out among wolves. So in this passage, Jesus has given us an image of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live life for him. God is obsessed with reclaiming the lost world. That is his consuming passion. And we can only know God deeply if we participate and share that passion. Witness and evangelism and mission are spiritual disciplines, things that, that will make us more like Jesus. And we want to be more like Jesus. How do we do it? It seems so difficult. We do it like lambs sent out among wolves.